The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. So if you'll open your Bibles, please, to Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 5. Our text verses is verse, are verses 4 through 8, and we are discussing the distinction that the apostle makes between two types of people, and these are, of course, believers and unbelievers. Believers are saved by the marvelous grace of God. We are pardoned from all of our sins by faith in the blood of Christ. We live in God's favor. While unbelievers are not pardoned, they remain guilty of their transgressions. They are hostile towards God. They haven't been reconciled to him. They are condemned and they are under God's wrath. But the Bible says, and Paul teaches here, that Christians, believers in Christ, are enlightened that we live in the light while those that are in unbelief live in spiritual darkness. And the difference between these two types of people is radical It's the difference between night and day, as darkness can't penetrate the light and can't exist with light. There is a complete separation of these two groups, and there will be an eternal physical separation. Each person, type of person, is fixed permanently in two different physical locations. Believers will always live in the light of God's glory, while unbelievers will exist apart from God in the darkness of eternal death. Now, in this passage, the metaphors of night and day speak of eternal happiness or eternal misery. To be with God, that is light, that is happiness. To be without him is eternal death and separation. So this is the spiritual and the physical end of these two types of people. And the end concerns what happens when this life is over. But in the meantime, both of these groups live physically together. We must live with the people of this world. As Paul just uh, said there in 1 Corinthians 5 that we read just a few minutes ago, he said separate from, from fornicators, but he said, you know, you can't go out of this world to do that. You have to live with them every day, but you don't have to live with them in the church. And that's what church discipline is about. But here we are. We are physically living and breathing in this physical world. We interact with the other group of people every single day. Yet you as a Christian are to separate from the works of darkness. Uh, again, you can't separate from them physically because we live in the same world. But we're not to live in darkness as they do and not to live as we once did when we were in spiritual darkness. Now, in the third verse of this chapter... Paul described the person without Christ as waiting sure destruction. The unbeliever doesn't realize that condition. He doesn't understand the danger of his sins. He thinks that all is well and he lives in peace and safety. And so he has no concern for his soul. You you won't meet too many people outside of the church that have any care about where they're going when they die. Uh, They are concerned about what happens to the soul. And this is the very person that Paul says destruction will come upon them and catch them. They will be unaware just like a thief comes in the night. And there's hardly ever a deviation from that course that people live in the moment and they never think about dying. And then one day they wake up, they're at the end of their lives, they realize that they're old, they see that life is fleeting, it soon slips away. 
As the word of God says, our life is like a vapor that appears for a little while, or just like a steam, like a mist that appears for a short time, and then it vanishes away. And then after these people have lived their long life, they come down to the end of that entire life and realize it wasn't very long at all. It's just like yesterday. Uh, today, it's, it, it, it seems like it's over so fast, and they haven't taken care for what concern or have concern for what comes afterwards, and so they have no hope. Even an atheist dies knowing that there is no comfort in death. And those who believe that their good works will save them, you know, there are some who believe, well, it's just all going to work out in the end. I've been a pretty good person, and, and uh, I've done all right. They, they, they've, they've trusted in their selves, and so they come down to the end of their lives, and they have no confidence that what they did was enough. They have no idea. Is God going to accept my life and what I did? And so they have no assurance of where they spend eternity. Psalm 107 describes that type of person. It says in the psalm that they sit in darkness, that they're bound in affliction. And that affliction means distress, it means misery. They dwell in darkness under the shadow of death. So we read here in Psalm 107, such as sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, being bound in affliction and iron, because they rebelled against the words of God and contemned the counsel of the Most High. Therefore, he brought down their heart with labor. They fell down. There was none to help. So in their own hearts, they're struggling. It's a laborious thing. They find no peace without God. Now, in our passage, it's Paul's point to say, we are believers, so we're not like that. Believers don't live in darkness. Believers don't live without hope. And we know that when our lives are over, we will not be overwhelmed not knowing what's going to happen to us. And so we live in the light of the hope of Christ. Now, if you look at our text, this is the way that the apostle expresses the difference between us and them. Beginning in verse 4, But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. There's that substitutionary atonement. Who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. Now, you notice that the apostle ends that section by saying, comfort one another. And that was very important for the Thessalonians because times were tough. They lived among people who looked like they were having a great time. They never had a care in the world. Eat, drink, and be merry. That's their mantra and so they lived their lives just soaking up every imaginable vice. They satisfied their flesh. But meanwhile, the church tried to live differently. They tried to be separate, and they wanted to be witnesses to those that were in darkness. But when they brought them the, the good news of the gospel of Christ, the world responded with persecution. Believers were treated as troublemakers, and even though they had the cure for the world's destructive habits. And so this disparity between the fun of the world, as Christians look at that, 
and persecutions that we endure, that sometimes becomes very troubling to us. We, we are baffled by that. We wonder, why do the wicked prosper? They live so, so terribly. They live against God. How do they do so well in the world while we're suffering all the time? And the psalmist thought the same thing when he looked at this and considered the end of the wicked and his own end as a believer. And he realized there's a difference between the two. Uh, we don't need to worry about how they live as far as whether that's going to be something that we want or desire because that end is destruction. And so the psalmist describes it this way in Psalm 73. Uh, he talks about the, 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 how his own soul was troubled over this. My flesh and my heart faileth. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go a-whoring from thee. In the 24th verse he said, Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Oh, there's something you ought to circle in your Bible right there. When you think about the world and how well they're doing, uh, thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterward receive me to glory. And that he's not going to do with all those people that live out there so wickedly. So Paul, he knew these verses very well in the Psalms. He used them in his own life to keep from being discouraged. And here his encouragement is for persecuted Christians to just hang in there. When there's so much trouble in your life, when so many things are difficult, just hang in there, stay in there, fight the good fight. Because the end of this, the end for us is very different from them. Their end is destruction, it comes swiftly, but not you, because you know what God has prepared for you. So these are things that you need to think on. This is what you need to remember when you're going through suffering in this life. Remember, the gospel shined into your heart. And remember that God revealed truth to you so that you understood where you were headed without Christ. The wicked don't know. They don't understand. They can't see beyond today. They don't know what waits in the future. Now, there is a reason that Paul wrote this church a, a letter like this. It, has, it concerns all of these things that they needed encouragement. He says, because God delivered you, because your future is different, walk with God now. Walk with God now. Endure all the hardships now because you have God's promise of eternal life. And as Paul explains this, he used contrast. He wants them to see the, the difference in what they are now and what they were before. Now, last week I gave you the contrast. I want to mention them again and then we're going to finish our discussion of the, of the final contrast. And that last one is the most important because that speaks of sanctification. It's the holiness of our lives. It is our walk with God. Now the first contrast we noted was the intellectual problem. Ignorance versus understanding. Now it's the opposite of the way that the world thinks because the world looks at us and they think our our way of life, our thinking is just backwards. We're the ones that are backwards, not them. We're just superstitious fools. We are not intellectually enlightened. And we expect that criticism. And it's okay if we receive it because God nailed the wicked. He nailed them by saying the things that the world thinks are foolish, those are the wisdom of God. Now people are in darkness because they're spiritually ignorant. They can't reason out the mind of God because they don't have a relationship with him. And understand when I speak of spiritual ignorance, I'm, I'm not talking about the same thing as natural intellect. 
These aren't what he's comparing. And we're not saying that unbelievers are uneducated. Now we know that many unbelievers are maybe very highly educated, more educated than Christians. They've invested all of their time in learning sciences and philosophies and economics and business. And I can read their journals, pick up what they've written, some of their books. I don't understand it. That's not my area of expertise. But at the same time, I can put them down into my setting, and they have no idea what I'm talking about. It doesn't register. They have no frame of reference. They have a radio antenna that goes up trying to receive a TV signal. But on the other hand, here's the difference between me and them. I can know everything they know. I can put in the hours. I can learn what they've learned. And in time, I'll come to understand sciences and economics. The same is not true of them. Put this Bible into their hands, just this one small thin volume, and they will read it and read it and reread it, and they will never come to the understanding of it. They'll work at it. They'll figure it. They'll study as much as they can, but they will not understand. And that's because natural understanding is not enough. Worldly wisdom is not enough. A genius mind is not enough. They will never reason it out and understand because this understanding is outside human ability. This understanding is supernatural. The understanding enlightenment of the Word of God comes only by the Holy Spirit of God. And when I say that, when I tell them, I say, you can't understand this because it's supernatural, they don't understand that. I can't even make that statement without them wondering and scratching their head. What are you talking about? It's supernatural. What do you mean? That's foolishness. Well, you know differently. You know differently. You know that God has given you grace. You know that he granted you faith and repentance. He saved your soul. And that's better than all the wisdom of the philosophers, all that the scientists know, all of the economists, all of that rolled together is not worth what we have in the word of God. It's worldly ignorance versus godly spiritual understanding. Now, the next contrast in the passage is the operational problem. It's blindness versus sight. I mean, here, here, here's what it is. Christians operate in a different sphere. We're in a different sphere. Walking in the light brightens up an entirely different world. Living in the light enables you to do the works of God. You can see all those pitfalls that lie ahead. You don't stumble and fall into those holes. But those that are in the darkness are different. Nobody can see in the dark. Darkness is blindness. Darkness is deceit. Blinded eyes, when the scripture speaks of that, simply means you can't operate in the spiritual world. That all of your senses are shut off from God. Now the Bible says the same in other ways. If it's not this night and day analogy, and if it's not seeing and blindness, then it's walking versus being lame. It's hearing versus deafness. It's touching or being past feeling. The problem is the mind of the unbeliever is trapped. It's contained in this one area of natural depravity and it has no power to go beyond. And what is the hardest hitting analogy that the Bible gives of it? It is life versus death. Those without Christ are spiritually dead. There is a misery in the soul that has no way out. You see, man was created... To know God. We were created in the image of God. 
But that image has been marred by sin, and so the Bible says that we're lost. And when you say lost, what do you mean? Well, lost to what? Well, lost to a relationship with God. Lost to understanding God. Lost to wellness and lost to holiness and happiness and lost to that eternal purpose that we've been made for, which is to glorify God. And so the unbeliever lives a miserable life, and that's how you feel without Christ. You just simply feel lost. When a person comes under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the misery can't be denied. Do you remember this when you got saved? How the Holy Spirit began to speak to your heart and, and then you, you, you just didn't know what to do. Uh, you, didn't, you, you felt so bad. I mean, the Spirit is drawing you and He's working in your heart. You don't know what to do and you become very anxious. And so what does that soul do when the Holy Spirit begins to convict? He can do only one thing. Cry out to God, God be merciful to me a sinner. And he never gets any relief until God touches his soul and gives him sight. He must see, he must hear, he must touch, he must be able to walk, he must have life. And so when the Holy Spirit comes with that conviction, the person comes under the power of the Spirit and we call that the effectual, irresistible call of God's grace. That is God drawing us to himself. And no person will ever come until the Holy Spirit moves because that person can't come. He can't come because he's trapped in that depravity of the dead soul. It's blindness and it's night. Now the third contrast is the heart of the series, living in the light of Christ's return. Number three is the moral problem. Wickedness versus righteousness. How shall we live? This is the, the crux of the matter. What are we morally? Now, when the Bible speaks of walking in the light, being in the light, it's the moral character considered. It's our sanctification. It's the change that is demonstrated in the way that we live. Do you understand that the world can't see your justification? The world can't see your adoption in Christ those are inward graces. Those things can't be seen outwardly. Sanctification is different. Although it is an inward grace, it's, a, it's reflected in our outward activity. This is the doctrine that proves that you have been justified. This is the doctrine that demonstrates that you have been adopted into God's family. In your sanctification, there is a change in your behavior that shows that. And this is exactly the encouragement of the passage. It's the outward proof that you belong to God. So you need to be very concerned about this. Is there any proof that you belong to God? Because this boils down to the very assurance that you have that you are in fact a child of God. Now the way that Paul expresses this is to compare it to being awake or being asleep. Sleep is nighttime activity. Sleeping is to be unaware it's to be uncaring of the way that you live. Now, in verse number 6, sleeping is not necessarily inactivity, but sleeping is the wrong activity. He says, therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. Those that are drunk are drunk in the night. Now, you see, then, there, there's activity in the night. And Paul is, is leading us into a metaphor that he's used before in Scripture. What does he mean by drunkenness? And why does he choose this vice over all the 
others that he could have chosen. Why does he talk about this one? I mean, he could have mentioned so many other things. Obviously, we can look at the passage and take it quite literally. We can just talk about drunkenness. People that get drunk, get drunk at night. Although sometimes you do see a drunk staggering down the street in the daytime, but most of the time, people get drunk at night. Christians are not supposed to get drunk. We could focus on that. Christians are not supposed to get drunk. In fact, drunkenness is one of those sins that's counted as automatic expulsion from the church. Did you know that? In fact, we just read that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Did you notice in the list? It said drunkenness, didn't it? That's in a list of a lot of other things. That, that thing of drunkenness, that's something you can get thrown out of the church for. It's public sin. Public intoxication is blight on the church. And Paul said, well, you need to get that person out of the church. But churches don't demand that anymore because they don't discipline anymore. What's the problem? The protection of the church is at stake. So I think that we need to go a step further. And in fact, our church does go a step further. Our church covenant says members of the church should not drink alcohol. In other words, alcohol, drinking alcohol is a violation of the church covenant. It's a violation of the trust of the church. It's a violation of the fellowship and of the community and the bond of membership. And regardless of what you think about alcohol, it is a violation of the mind of Christ. Now, I say you may disagree with that, and you may do it anyway. But what makes your spiritual insight better than the leadership or better than the membership of the church? What makes it okay to do what a hundred members have said we won't do? Not in the fellowship of this church. And yet, if you do it, that's dishonesty. And frankly, that is a sign of walking in the dark. And so we could take the passage quite literally. We could extrapolate from it a teaching about the use of alcohol. But if we did, we'd be wrong. Because that's not Paul's purpose. We ought not to get drunk. We ought not to drink alcohol. But that's not what Paul's dealing with here. He's using this in a different way in the passage. And it's better to see it as a contrast in the way that the Holy Spirit works in the life of a believer. Now, to show you what Paul means, I'd like you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Scripture is always the best commentary on Scripture. And Paul revisited these themes because each church had similar problems. A letter to one church is a letter to all the churches. These letters were circulated among the churches because it was truth for all of them, just like it's truth to the church today. Now, here in Ephesians 5, we get a clue to Paul's meaning of drunkenness and sobriety in 1 Thessalonians. In Ephesians 5.18, he writes, And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. You wonder, how do those two things correlate? Filled with the Spirit and drunkenness. How do you ever put those two things together? Well, what's the contrast? Well, what happens when a person gets drunk? I don't know from personal experience because I've never been drunk. In fact, I'm X number of years old, somewhere between... 45 and 52, somewhere in there. And uh, I've never had a taste of alcohol in my entire life. Never. So I, I don't know this from personal experience. But I do know from observation. A drunk loses control. A drunk's senses are dulled. He's not sensible about what he does. He gets into a car. He hasn't the coordination. And so he is reckless and he might kill someone. Then in the morning he work, wakes up from that stupor and he 
doesn't have any idea what happened the night before. Now, teaching about the atrociousness and the consequences of what happens to drunks is not Paul's point. His point has to do with control. What about control? Alcohol is a bad influence on you so that it controls you. And Paul is saying here, you ought not to do anything that causes you to lose control. Now, the contrast is, is that you are to always be under the control of the Holy Spirit. Don't be filled with anything that has control over you, but be filled with the Spirit. So Christians that are asleep are unaware and not led by the Spirit. They are indwelled by the Spirit because every, every child of God is, all Christians are. But they're not always filled with the Spirit so that the Spirit controls all thoughts and all activities. They're not influenced by the Spirit to regard all things that they do in their lives in consideration of their faith. I think about that song that we just sang, The Power of the Cross. Dalton's, Brother Dalton's emotional approach to that or emotional reaction to that. Why? Because Christ did so much for me. He did so much for me. He died for me. And the argument of the Scripture is always this. Christ did so much for us. Why aren't we obedient to Him? There's that gratitude that we have. We consider our faith in everything that we do. Now, in Galatians chapter 5, the Bible talks about evidences of the Spirit. You know it well, the fruits of the Spirit. And there you can see that sanctification is nothing more than the Holy Spirit filling you with all Christian graces. It's peace, it's long-suffering, it's gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness and temperance. How are you filled with the Spirit? How do you get all those Christian graces? Well, there's a one-on-one correspondence with being filled with the Word of God. In Colossians 3, 16 and 17, Paul said, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom. I don't have time for us to do a full comparison of Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5, but I can tell you that Colossians 3.16 is an exact parallel to Ephesians 5.18-21. And when you begin to compare those scriptures, you see the only difference is the interchangeability of these terms, that being filled with the Spirit is the same as the Word of God dwelling in you, the Word of Christ dwelling in you. So I'm telling you that an unaware Christian is one who doesn't know and live in the Word. He's not filled with the Spirit because he hasn't spent time in the Word. And when we get to the issue of studying sanctification a little deeper, and that'll come in a few weeks, we'll make this very point. It is the Word that sanctifies. And so if you are going to be sanctified, if you're not in the Word of God, the degree of your sanctification depends upon how much that you are in the Word of God. Now, the Christian who doesn't have his anchor fastened to the rock-solid Word of God will drift. The Word of God corrects the intents of the heart. It will be your sanctification. Now, if you're still there in Ephesians 5, I want you to look at the first part of the chapter. And here Paul begins a description of those that walk in the darkness. This is what it was like before. But ye therefore, be therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love As Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as become as saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. 
For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be ye not therefore partakers with them. Oh, you read that list, is that not characteristics of our culture? Whether we're speaking of Ephesus or Thessalonica or Ronard Park, this is the culture. And Christians are tempted to live like the culture, like they did before. And what does the Word of God say, say here? It was because of these sins, these very things that Christians go back into and live in most churches today, it's because of these things the wrath of God was on them. That's how nighttime people live. And the apostle says, you are a child of God, you can't live that way. So how does he follow these sins and those that commit them? Well, again, he says, you're Christians, you can't live that way. How does he say that? Verse 8, Ephesians 5, verse 8. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now ye are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. What do you do now? Verse 11. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. See, that's the very separation I spoke of at the beginning. You must separate from their sins. You must call out the children of darkness. Reprove them, the Word of God says. And I'll tell you, when you do, it won't make you popular. You stand against the culture, you will not be popular, but you will be right. And you'll be doing them a favor because they don't know that they're headed for destruction. Look at verse 14. Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. You see that? Sleeping is spiritual death. You can't live like people that are spiritually dead. How could you? Paul reasons this out. How, how could you? You're alive. You're alive in Christ. I don't think there's any of you that would crawl into a coffin and consent to be buried six feet under. Why? Because you're physically alive. And the same is true here. You are spiritually alive in Christ. And so you can't live like the dead. You're just like the maniac in, of Gadara who got saved and couldn't live among the tombs any longer. He was clothed and in his right mind. And that's what God says about you. Then you go on. You go on reading in Ephesians 5. Finally, you get to this point there in verse 18. Be filled with the Spirit. Well, going back to our text in 1 Thessalonians in verse 6. He says, let us watch and be sober. Be sober. Now again, we could just get literal and speak of physical drunkenness, but that's not his point. He's comparing again, be sober. He's just saying, act like you got some sense. A drunk has no sense, does he? Act like you got some sense. I mean, act as if you are spiritually sensitive, that you are spiritually aware. Now go down to verse 8, 1 Thessalonians 5. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. But let us, who are of the day, be sober. Wake up, that's what he's saying. You're in the daytime, the Spirit controls you. And then look how Paul pulls us back into the major theme of this epistle. Before we read it, it'll be, be much clearer to you if you just turn back to chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. And there he says... 
We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. Now that should make chapter 5 verse 8 much clearer to us. We read it, but let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for an helmet the hope of salvation. That's the theme that he talked about in chapter 1. Now Paul tells you how to do this. How are you going to walk as children of the light? What is your strength to do it? Well, he's full of metaphors. And so here he pulls up another one. If you don't know metaphors, you don't know Paul. He's, he says breastplate and helmet. And those are his often used metaphors of a soldier. This is his often comparison of the Christian life to warfare. That a Christian is a soldier of the cross. Onward Christian soldiers. Onward Christian soldiers marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. Paul says, you're soldiers, you're in a warfare. Now as he says soldiers, who do you think that they were thinking of? Well, they're thinking of Roman soldiers. Roman soldiers are all around them. Especially, they think of those that are brave and disciplined, that had defeated every army that came against them. The Roman soldier was no nonsense. He was a formidable fighting machine, particularly those centurions that were the backbone of the Roman army. They had distinguished themselves for their fighting valor. They were those fighting machines. So there's no one who stood up against the Romans. They're the iron legs of Nebuchadnezzar's image. And so the centurions had proved themselves in battle. And as Paul says this, what do they think of when they think of that centurion? A breastplate, a helmet. And of course they wore other armaments. And Paul elaborates more on that metaphor in Ephesians 6. But he's making a point here that Christians need protection against Satan's attacks. And these, these protections are against the many temptations of the devil. And this is what we need to protect ourselves. The breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of hope. That's actually a summary of Ephesians 6, 11 through 13. Now if you'll let me, or permit me just to take a little more time in the 11th verse of Ephesians 6. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you, what? The whole armor of God. Why? That ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Now, as a Christian, then, as you walk through life, you've got to consider this fight that you're in. And you must understand that the devil has many, King James word, wiles. That is a translation of a word that means methods of attack. Many different ways that Satan comes against you. Satan is always in front of you. He is always behind you. He's always beside you. He's always above you. He's always beneath you. But you know something else? So is God. God's in all of those places too. And he says, take on these armaments. These are the ways that God protects you against the attacks from every direction. And you will not stand in your Christian life except you wear them. James said, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And this is the resistance, putting on the whole armor of God. But sadly, there are many Christians who do not get up every day and put on their armor. They just don't. 
They put up no resistance. And so the devil drags them around like a rag doll. As Paul would say, tossed to and fro. How do you resist? Put on the breastplate of faith and love. Faith guards you inwardly. Faith in God, unfailing faith in his ability to help, unfailing faith that God keeps all of his promises. Love is your outward protection. Love projects what you are. You can't be a Christian without love. And so faith and love are seen together in the breastplate. These are inseparable. Love goes out to others. That's a sanctifying mark of a Christian. 1 John 4:11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us and his love is perfected in us. Have you ever thought much about what that means? When he says, no man has seen God at any time. Then he connects that with, if we have love one for another, God dwelleth with us, in us, and his love is perfected in us. In other words, you can't see God, but what you can see is actions. You can't see love, which means that God is in you. They can't see God, but they can see God in you because of what you do. You need the breastplate of faith and love. And then he says you need a helmet. A helmet protects your head. Your helmet is the hope of salvation. It protects you from the evil thoughts. It's there to make you think about the future of your salvation. It's there to tell you why you're going through all of this. What is it that you're living for? And it's there to tell you that this life and this fight that we go through where everybody is against us, it's worth it. It's there to tell you that all the troubles that you have are nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed in you. What do you hope for? What are you living for? What are you fighting for? This, to be like Christ and to be with Christ. The great and terrible day of the Lord will not overtake you because of that sure hope in Christ. You're protected from his wrath, from the wrath of God because of your salvation, protected from the wrath to come. Paul says so in verse 9. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Next week we're going to look at that statement. And I'm going to tell you that is, that is so wonderful for the child of God who is called, elected, chosen by God. God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. We obtain salvation. That's final salvation. It's the end that we hope for. We live in hope, folks. But we're not there yet. We live in hope because that's the only kind that God gives. It's sure hope, but we're not there yet. We will obtain. Assuredly, we will obtain. And we must have the helmet of salvation to guard that hope. Now let's back up for just a minute. Where did Paul get this imagery? Is this just something, he, you know, Paul, did he just make this up in his own mind? And, and he said, you know, I've got a sermon to write this week, and I think that I'm just going to come up with this analogy of, of soldiers and fighting and breastplates and all of that kind of stuff, and, and I, it's going to be just a great sermon point. You just wait till people hear this. Where did he get it? Well, it turns out that he learns about faith, love, and hope, and all this imagery and fighting temptation from someplace. It came from the Old Testament. Paul preached the Old Testament. It comes out of Isaiah chapter 59. And he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore his arm brought salvation unto him and his righteousness it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and an helmet of salvation upon his head. And he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. Who's that about? Do you know? Who's it about? It's about Christ. 
How did Christ live a perfect life? How did he resist the devil's temptations? He had protection. He wore the armor of God. This is what Paul says in Ephesians, doesn't he? Put on the whole armor of God. How are you going to resist if you do less than Christ did, the Son of God? How are you going to do it? So think of Christ. He had faith in his Father. He knew his Father would raise him from the dead and return him to glory. He loved others. He loved as his Father loved. His arm brought salvation. Salvation is what he is all about. And keeping that goal in front of him, he set his face as a flint and was rock solid in his resolute to go, resolution to go to the cross. That's what faith, love, and hope will do for you. It will make you rock solid to resist temptation. You'll have faith and trust in God to help you. You'll love. You know, why do you need love? Well, lack of love causes you to look inwardly. If you don't love as God says, you're going to put your love somewhere. I mean, you're, 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 you're going to love something. Something's going to grab your affections. You know what it is? Always. If you don't love God and love other people, who gets loved? You. You focus yourself, uh, focus everything on you. And it's just you. And so you want what you want, not what God wants. Then he says the helmet. Why do you need it? Because one day you'll be glorified. One day you'll be holy like Christ. And there's no sin there. There's no temptation. There's no sin and glorification. And he's saying, keep thinking these thoughts. God, make me like Christ today. And I will be glorified with him forever. 1 John 3, 2 and 3. But beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him For we shall see him as he is, and every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. That's sanctification. If you have that hope always in front of your mind, if you're always looking at Christ, you can't help but to purify yourself through the grace of God. So we see Christ, we shall be like him. Keep that thought always in front of you and hope will purify you. You will live in the light. He's not in the darkness and neither will you be. So it's the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of hope. Now that's eight verses that we've completed. There's still some more wonderful thoughts in verses 9 through 11. I'm looking forward to that sermon. You are children of the day. You are different. Your destiny is different. Your life is different. Your hope is different. Your end is different. It's not like those that are in the darkness. So Christian, consider your life. How do you live knowing that Christ will return? Are you sanctified? Does your life show that you're sanctified? Without doubt, all of your hope is in Christ. Now all of these distinctions are given so that we can maintain that hope. What is your assurance that you are truly a child of God? Well, I'll tell you. You must live in the here and now. As a Christian should live, so that then you'll know you'll live in the light of God forever. That's your sanctification. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you thanking you for the word of God. What we learn here about living the Christian life and how, Lord, you expect us to be sanctified, to be like you. And I pray, Lord, that each and every member of Berean Baptist Church and visitors that are here today as well, that they would consider what they do every single day in their life and find assurance in the fact that lives are changed. 
And if our lives have not been changed, and if we're struggling with this, and we just can't seem to get it right, and we're always doing the wrong thing, then we know that the light of God has not truly shined into our heart. Lord, draw us to your Holy Spirit with conviction and with faith and with repentance. And Lord, that you would grant us that we would know Christ truly in our hearts by that changed life that we so much desire to have. Help us today, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.